Good afternoon, church. It's great to see you once again, and it's a great pleasure to be back here to this pulpit to open up God's Word with you. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Nino, and I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at Treos. And if you join our church in the last two months, it might be probably the first or second time you, you, you're seeing me here because I was with my family in Brazil. We spent two months there. Uh, it was tough to be like f apart from like my home church here, uh, but it was really good. Uh, we saw God be moving like in powerful ways there as well, which I can share in a different moment. Uh, but we are grateful for the time we had there. And but I'm very very glad to be back here. And as you guys know, we have been working through the book of Ephesians, and today is our last day in this great New Testament book. Um, and as we saw in our series so far, when we talk about salvation in Christianity, it's much more than a single movement from God to just forgive our sins and let us live in heaven when we die. But in this letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wants to show us that uh, in the gospel, the mysterious plan of God for humanity is now finally revealed. So in the first section of this letter, we learn that God in his Trinitarian nature, God is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, work and plan and act from eternity past to create a people for himself. And God's ultimate plan for humanity and for creation is revealed the incarnation of Jesus. So in the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we have revealed God's eternal intent to unite himself to his creation. All things in heaven and on earth are united eternally to God in Jesus Christ. So Christ in his resurrection and in his resurrected body, he inaugurated this new creation. He is the dawn of the new creation, as Paul says in a different letter. And then Paul develops in the second part of the book, in the second session of the section of this letter, how we should live in light of this new reality. If we are now eternally united to Christ by grace, uh, by the grace of God and through faith, how should we live? That's the question the second section of the book answered. And the answer to this is, is straightforward. If you're not, if you're now united to Christ, and we get to share in the very nature of God, in His holiness, in His light. So we, walk, we ought to walk in holiness. We ought to walk in the light. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, we, we should have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but we should rather expose them. And then Paul says we must put on the new self, creating the image of God to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. But now, as we conclude this letter, Paul, who described, described the marvelous nature of the gospel and the wonder uh, that, of the life in Christ, he wants us now to see the necessity of being prepared for war, being prepared for battle. The apostle wants us to understand that right living, a life of holiness, will not come without opposition in this age. And he wants us not just to walk in a manner worth of the gospel, as he urged the church in chapter 4. But now he commands us to be strengthened and to be ready for battle. So we can stand when the, day of, the days of evil come. So in the section we are studying today, Paul talks like a general, motivating his troops for war. 
So I want you to open the Bible with me in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to study from verse 10 to 20 today. Ephesians 6. Verse 10 to 20. The word of God says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of, the tr the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, have put on the redness uh, given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we are thankful because we can come in your presence on this day to worship you. We are, we are thankful because we are not saved to just walk in the way we want, but we are saved for a specific goal to worship you and to live a life that glorifies you and glorifies your name. And we are thankful because we have your word to teach us everything we need for a life of holiness. We are thankful for the church because we don't walk alone and we can help each other, encourage each other. We can pray for each other, use our gifts to, to build up and bless each other. And in this moment, I ask, Lord, that you can be using your word as you always do to talk to your church. Open the hearts here to, to listen to the things you have to say to your church. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, softened heart to, to receive and to love the truth. And that we can leave here this, this worship services transformed by your word, by the worship. And that we can walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And that we can be the, a church that glorifies your name here in the city. Thank you, Jesus, because we know in your name God listens to our prayers and he responds. 
Amen. Amen. So, one thing we need to establish from the beginning is that the Bible is very clear about the existence of Satan and his demons. The scripture teaches us that we have three big enemies. We have the first one, sin, the world, and Satan. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism explains, and if you don't know what a catechism is, is a, the catechism summaries the major teachings of the Holy Scripture in memorable questions and answers. And the Heidelberg Catechism is specifically one of the main reform catechisms for this end, and it's very, very profitable for Christians, so I would recommend for you to, to study it and to read it. And in the question 127, the answer to the question affirms the, the following. We're going to have here in the screen too. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. So, as we have seen this letter, the letter to the Ephesians so far, Paul is urging the Christians to fight against our flesh by putting off the old man and putting on the new man in the image of Christ. We saw Paul warning us to be careful to not be contaminated by the word and live as the Gentiles do. Paul commands us to not become partners of the word, but children of, as children of light to, to live in the light and expose the fruitless deeds of darkness. And now in chapter 6, Paul wants us to be aware of this third enemy, Satan. Satan, different from the first two enemies, is not an impersonal entity, but he is a personal being. The Bible presents Satan and his demons as fallen angels. So the existence of Satan is established by nine of the books of the Old Testament. You can find Things about Satan, Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. And Satan is mentioned in all the books of the New Testament. So the Bible is very clear about the existence of Satan. And the term Satan comes from a Hebrew word, and it means accuser or adversary. And Satan, all demons, we need to understand they were created by God as spiritual beings to worship and serve God. And Satan, according to the Bible, was the angel that was above all other spiritual beings. You can read more about it later in Ezekiel 28. If you want to take note, Ezekiel 28 talks more about it. And Satan, he fell from his high position because of his pride and his desire to overthrow God of glory, of his glory. God then spelled Satan and all the rebel angels from heaven sent them to earth. And we see from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis that Satan then focused his attack now on humanity. Man as the crown of creation, as the clearest expression of the image of God, became the main target of Satan. So Adam, the first man, could not stand in this, in this struggle against Satan. He was deceived. And he could not stand against the schemes of the devil. And in his failure to, to resist Satan, he became 
the man Paul describes in, the, in Ephesians chapter 2. Adam became dead in his sins, spiritually dead in his transgressions and sins. He was now following the ways of the world, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, and enslaved to the ruler of the kingdom of the earth, Satan himself. And all humanity coming from Adam is born in the same condition. Dead in sin, following the ways of the world, and enslaved by Satan. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for us, he made us alive in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. The Bible presents Jesus Christ as the second and better Adam. Jesus Christ, who is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he incarnated in flesh like ours and defeated all our enemies in his perfect life, in his vicarious death, and in his resurrection. So Jesus, in his sinless life, he defeated sin. Jesus, when taped by Satan, never was deceived and was obedient to God to the point of death, resisting Satan with the redness, with the truth, with faith, with righteousness, and defeating him with the word of God as his sword. And in his glorious resurrection, Jesus, Jesus conquers death and is declared and establishes the king of the world. Now the world is subjugated to Jesus. And now through the gospel message, we are invited to die to our old self in our relation to Adam and be born to this new life in union with Christ, union with this might water who defeated all the enemies of humanity. Jesus who, who, who walked clothed in the armor of God. So in this context, we are called by Paul to slay our sin, to resist the world and defeat Satan and his evil forces. We cannot resist the devil by our own strength. We cannot resist the devil with our willpower, with our intelligence, with our resolution, with our wisdom. And that's how Paul starts his instruction here. He says, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here in verse 10, Paul gives the, his final instruction to the church. He says, finally, and it's a call to be strong. The Bible in the Old and the New Testament is filled with passages in which God calls his people to be strong. For example, we have in Joshua 1.7 when God says to Josh, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law. We have in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Some translations will say, be courageous and be strong. When we read our Bibles, it's easy to notice that Christianity is not a religion for the passive, for the lazy, for the weak. God calls us to be strong and courageous. And that's what Paul is doing here. God never calls his people to, to tranquility. Yes, we are called to live in peace, but it is a peace in the midst of war and struggle. It's peace that exceeds the understanding. And that's why in chapter 5, verse 13, 14, Paul says, This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Be very careful then how you live, not as, as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So he's, he's telling the church, it's time to wake up. Friends, the days are evil. The Bible tells us that Satan is like a lion and he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And here in chapter 6, Paul repeatedly talks about the necessity of being ready so we might stand firm. And the evil day is upon us. It's not time to rest right now. And friends, some people might think like, you're being pessimistic. But I believe it's just like being biblical. The days are evil. Satan is deceiving the nations. Satan is at work. And being naive, naively optimistic and unaware when the days are evil is not a virtue. But it's foolishness and it's like a faith in what God warns us in the scripture. But the thing is, God does not say we should fear the evil day. So the, the goal here is not like that you may, might fear the evil day. Or be anxious about the evil day. But he says, be strong. Be strong in the Lord so you might stand. If you are a true believer, Satan hates you because you bear the image of Christ. And the more holy you become, more the image of Christ shines on you. And the more he hates you. And he will wage war against you. Satan is already defeated in the cross. As I said, Jesus defeated all our enemies in the cross. And God has already provi provided for us what's necessary to stand against his schemes because of Jesus Christ. So if we have faith in Jesus and what he has done for us in the cross, we will not fear Satan. But we will put on the equipment that was conquered for us to be victorious. In our faith and our trust for the, in, in the Lord, will cause us to come to him and be strengthened. Now, having understood the situation, the necessity of being strong, we need to understand what it means to be strong here. What's the nature of this strength? So, Paul is very clear in this passage. He tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. So, Paul is not asking you, he's not asking the church to summon from inside some strength. Use the strength you have in your inner being. He's not saying like a life coach, you're more powerful than you imagine. He's not saying like we need just to unlock this inner strength you, you have. That's not what Paul is teaching here. No, he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in his strength. And the kind of strength Paul envisions here just can come from the Lord. And only can be drawn for a union with the Lord. So humans being, human beings can be incredibly strong to do certain things. How many stories have you heard of people who work like multiple jobs and study a lot and with much struggle were successful in their careers or financially? Or people who decide to abandon addiction and they did it. People who decide to lose weight and they did it. Or to become like a professional athlete and they did it. There are innumerable stories of people who overcome all obstacles in life and became something that no one would never imagine. 
And you don't need to be a Christian to do that. And those things are formable. I'm not saying those are bad things. They're good from the human perspective. But that's not what the picture Paul is trying to picture here. That's not the kind of strength he's talking about. There is a struggle that all human beings face, as I have been saying, against sin, against the world, and against Satan. And I want you to point me one person who overcome those things with their own power. No one can. Unfortunately, I think there are too many Christians and churches out there who put too much emphasis on the human capacity to, to make the right choices and attain holiness by their own power. People who believe they can overcome Satan through knowledge, through some sort of spiritual disciplines or some kind of like cleverness, and they want to become warlocks of the faith. They know all the secrets of Satan and they, they do certain things that bind Satan. That's what Paul is teaching here. That's not the way we resist Satan. The gospel preached and believed by many is that Jesus saved us or forgive you from sin, and now it's your responsibility to keep yourself standing. But that's not the gospel that Paul preached. Because those people, they ignored a very important biblical truth. That Jesus is not just the one who initially saves you, but it's in his strength that you will persevere and stand to the end. He is the one who ultimately saves us. So church, here's the first principle we need to learn about spiritual warfare. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's the first principle of spiritual warfare. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is the mighty warrior. He is the one who is strong. He is the one who defeated all the enemies. He is the one who can and will finally defeat all our enemies. Our strength is God's strength. Our armor is God's armor. Our sword is God's word. Our victory is God's victory. And what we do is in our union with Jesus, we take possession of those things. They're not ours, but become ours by grace through faith. So do you remember chapter 1 of Ephesians when Paul prays that Christians, the Christians would have their understand, their eyes of their hearts open to see what they already have in Jesus? Verses 18 to 21. I, I want to read this again. Paul, Ephesians 1, verse 18 to 21. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory, glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the might strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. So Paul was praying that he wants us to be able to see the hope the inheritance, and the power that's given to us by Jesus Christ. And it is this exact power that now Paul is calling us here in chapter 6 to use and to be strength to resist the devil. 
The power that seated Jesus in the position of authority over all powers in heaven and on earth, the power that made Jesus' authority over Satan is available to us and is the reason why we can have victory over him. Now the follow-up question is, how can we be strengthened by the power of God? And the answer Paul gives us is, we need to take up the whole armor of God. And this is repeated twice in verse 11, 13. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that we may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So the means by which we become strong in the Lord is by putting on the whole armor of God. We need this specific spiritual equipment to be able to resist what Paul envisions as the most important struggle of the Christian. But now look at verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. So the clause 4 here indicates the reason why we need to put on the armor of God. The armor of God is necessary because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is a Hebrew expression for humans. That's it, just what he wants to say. We don't struggle, we don't, we don't battle against humans. Not, not, our war is not against humans. Now think about it. Paul is affirming we don't struggle with human beings. And it could make you think that Paul is talking from a place of overall peace with all the people in his life. And maybe for yourself, you, you, you feel like the struggle with flesh and blood is really real. Yeah, the problem in my life is this coworker, or is this person in my family, or is this person at church, or this, this Justin Trudeau, or someone like this. The struggle is against a person, it's flesh and blood. Well, let's remember the historical context of this letter. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Yeah, he was in prison. Good job. And if you read the book of Acts, you know that the Jews plotted to kill Paul. He was rejected and despised by many. He was persecuted by the Jews and Gentiles. And he was there in prison, basically waiting for his execution. So it is this Paul that could see the struggle with flesh and blood that's very real. His life was in danger because of flesh and blood. It is this Paul who says our real struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. And we see the same thing in the life of Jesus. When he is with Pilate, Pilate is asking Jesus questions and he thinks he can help Jesus in his struggle. And Jesus is very clear to him. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And you, Pilate, have no power on this situation. You don't, you don't understand what actually is happening here. Pilate saw Jesus' situation as a flesh and blood struggle with his human, eye, human eyes. But Jesus, through his spiritual eyes, knew the conflict was much bigger and truly spiritual. So when Paul talks here about rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, he's not trying to entice us to seek more knowledge about how the demonic hosts are organized, as some people try to do. But here he makes clear that to his readers that the struggle is not against certain Roman rulers, 
is not certain Roman authorities or even Roman, the Roman Empire as an entity. The Christian struggle is the same as Christ. And when we become Christians, we ought to die for our old struggles. And now we unite ourselves to Christ in his mission and in his struggle. So that's something we don't think about, like when we become Christians. When Jesus says, deny yourself, we sometimes think about the good things of our life we need to deny. But Jesus is saying, like, you need to deny these battles, these struggles you think you have. You have been dedicating your life to these struggles, to, to win those battles. Forget about it. I have something much bigger for you. The war is not political. It's not ideological. It's spiritual. Many Jews of that time, they saw the struggle with the Roman Empire as the main struggle of their lives. And they thought the Messiah would come to engage in this struggle and free them from the Roman dominion. And Jesus comes, invites them to deny themselves. Abandon this idea of defeating Rome. Forget about it. That's not what I came to do. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. You're going to have it here on the screen. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight, we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, friends, the world was and we always have its conflicts. There are military wars, ideological wars, political wars, so on, all the kinds of wars. And we Christians, we need to be very careful to not engage in a war different from the one our Lord Jesus Christ or our, our general enlisted us to fight. It needs to be very clear in our minds that this struggle is not against a certain person, uh, my workplace or member of my family, a politician and certain artist. Uh, it's not like against Netflix or certain group of people. It's not against those things. And here lies what should be one of the major differences between a Christian and a conservative. A conservative is struggling against a certain group of people to establish a certain political state and a certain type of law. They want their ideology to be dominant. The true believer is not struggling against a certain political group or against a certain ideology. But as Paul says, Christians want to demolish all the arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we want to take all the thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. So, though the teaching of the Word of God, through the, through the teaching of the Word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, we want to bring people to repentance and full obedience to Christ. That's the war we fight. Having understood that, we need to go one step further. Paul wants us to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we need to understand that this, the devil has his schemes. The devil has multiple ways of achieving his one goal. And what's the goal of our enemy? What's the goal of, our dev, of the devil? Exactly. And more specifically, he wants us to sin. He wants us to disobey God. 
death will be the consequence of our sin. The devil is not concerned about establishing a political party. He's not a politician. The devil is not concerned about like he, when having like all the musicians to work for him because he loves music and have metal. No, that's that's not the the, the the goal of the devil. What he wants you he wants human beings to sin, to be disobedient to God. And he's gonna find multiple ways to do this. He's the one who, who, who wants to create arguments and create pretension that set itself up against the knowledge of God. And he wants to bring people captive to disobedience to Christ. He wants the opposite of what we want. So the, the devil is constantly working behind the creation of arguments, behind every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And he wants to bring people to a life of disobedience to Christ. That's his goal. And, that, and we see very clear from the very start of the Bible in, in the Garden of Eden. Satan questioned God's teachings. He questioned his knowledge and his intentions, and he seduced Adam and Eve, the first couple, to disobey God. And for the rest of human history, that's the one thing the devil does through multiple schemes. The devil has been deceiving whole nations and people with false religions, for example. Throughout history, we have, uh, have religions for all tastes from the more tribal and naturalistic, from the more sophisticated and technological. But all those religions, they have one thing in common. Disobedience to the only true living God. Because that's his goal. The devil has been using and will use different governmental structures that place in themselves in the place of God. You have kingdoms and tires, you have regimes like the communist or the Nazi regime, and you have even democratic regimes. All of them being organized in a way that give authority, the authority that belongs to God to someone, someone else, to the monarchs, to dictators, to the present, or even to the people. The power belongs to the people. And many times those two work together, the religions and the state to bring people to a life of disobedience to Christ. It's like the two beasts of the book of Revelation, religion and the state. And those anti-God and anti-Christ systems, being religious or political, will always be at war against the church. Why? Because the church is working the exact opposite way. The church wants you to demolish those things. So it's not if the church is just there existing passively, like, we just want to do our own thing. No, we are attacking the kingdom of the devil. We are at war. And the devil comes and responds, attacking us too. As Paul says, we, the church, we are on attack. Through the preaching of the word, we are constantly demolishing strongholds. We are rescuing people from the realm of darkness to the kingdom of light and obedience to Christ. And that's why we need to understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our goal as the church is not to establish a temporal state or to pastor the laws, which is not a bad thing. But our main goal is spiritual. We want to deliver people from the power of Satan. And we want to deliver them not just from an external perspective. We don't want the society of external conformity 
to the law of God, but we want every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive to obey Christ. Not external conformity. We want to give to Christ what he died to conquer. A people to worship God in the spirit and in truth. External conformity is not enough. So, so far I have talked about Satan's schemes that are work outside the church and in other religious systems and governments. But there is a scheme that the Bible is constantly warning us against. And it's when Satan infiltrates the church. And he infiltrates the church through what? False doctrine, false Christians, false teachers. And through those things, he sows division, he sows immorality, lukewarmness, and all kinds of sin. In other words, he sows disobedience to Christ, which is his main goal. So, church, the big problem with wrong and false doctrine is not that we Christians, we really like to be correct about everything. The true problem is that wrong knowledge leads to wrong living. That's the problem. False doctrine will lead to false worship in a sinful living. Every revelation we have from God in the Bible is not meant to satiate our intellectual hunger, but is meant to teach us how to live a life of holiness. That's the goal of the Bible. The same problem when we accept false Christians and false teachers in our midst. The Bible teaches that little leaven leavens the whole lump. False Christians will set up patterns of behavior in the church that are sinful. And little by little, they will make us accustomed to sin. And here we have a whole spectrum of sinful behavior from church that we will accept sexual immorality as we have in Canada today. Churches will accept gay marriage and all those things. But we have as well the very strict church and that they make their own traditions superior to the law of God. And Satan, he wants to live a life of disobedience to Christ. It doesn't matter if you, truly, you, you, you do whatever you want, or you become very strict and ascetic, and you, you put your traditions above the law of God. He doesn't care. He wants you to be disobedient. The Protestant and the Pharisee both need to repent and come under the Lordship of Christ. And church, those enemies that erode the church from the inside will open the way for the external enemy to enter those false religions and the Antichrist state to enter the church. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise when we see like those churches bending in each other religions into the state because they, they, they remove Christ from his place of lordship from their churches. And when the lordship of Christ is not upheld in the church, the space is open for other things or other people to take its place. And we need to remember there is yet another sphere that Satan wants to infiltrate and has his schemes. Family. You will never have a strong church without strong families. And many times the families become the place where Satan sows his evil seeds and weakens the church. So we need to be careful to raise our kids in the fear of the Lord. To teach them to have the word of God as the main and primary authority. And many parents, they abandon the authority of 
God's word in their homes. When instead of educating their children according to what the Bible described, they follow modern philo philosophy or psychology. The word of God needs to become first, needs to be primary in our homes. Parents need to remember that in their marriage, their marriage should be this picture of the gospel to their kids from birth. As we learn in Ephesians 5, the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church and the woman submissive to, his, to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And when you don't live in this way, you're allowing a satanic model of disobedience to God to be the pattern in your home. We are at war, church. We need to protect our families. Obedience to God is not an option. We need to be careful to obey Christ in our sexual life. To look at what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7.5. He says, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer, yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, church, Paul sees sex inside marriage, not just a tool for procreation or pleasure for the couple to enjoy, but he sees it as important in our struggle against Satan. So a biblical healthy sexual life is very important if you want to stand against the schemes of Satan. We need to protect our families. We need to bring our families to a life of obedience to Christ in everything. So there is much more we could, could be said about the schemes of Satan, but I hope you grasp the big picture here. Satan wants to bring all spheres of life, the carbon, worship, church, family, into a pattern of disobedience to Christ. And he use all the kinds of schemes from the more obvious to the very subtle, to deceive every single individual in this planet. And how do we stand firm in our obedience to God, in our families, in our churches, in the society, in our individual lives? We need to put on the armor of God. So let's talk a little bit about the armor of God and the components of this armor. Let's read again Ephesians 6, verse 14 to 17. It says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of the truth, and have put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, have put on the redness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Well, to, to be fair, like we could do a, like a mini-series just on this verse and go deeper in each part of this armor. But today, I just want you to give you an overview of this armor, what Paul wants us to focus in our spiritual warfare. First, I don't think speculations about the connection between specific features and specific parts of the armor are super helpful. They can be somewhat helpful. But I'm saying this because I don't think Paul has this concern in mind. Because, for example, if you, you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, uh, he says the following, he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So here in First Thessalonians, he has a different uh, breastplate. 
So we see that in Ephesians, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. In Thessalonians, he talks about the breastplate of faith and love. So you could assume that there are different armors that can use and different breastplates that can wear. But I think we would be missing the whole point of the passage here. So the first thing we need to understand is that Paul is borrowing this language of the armor of God from the book of Isaiah. So open your Bible to, uh, with me in Isaiah 59, verse 14 to 17. Isaiah, the book of prophet Isaiah 59, 14 to 17. Look at what the prophet says. He says, Justice is turning back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on the righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation in his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So we see in the prophet Aaron's here that the prophet, he sees the Lord God coming down from heaven, judgment and redemption. And he sees the world filled with unrighteousness, with injustice, with lies. There is no man to intercede. So he comes down to fight this battle. And he put on this breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the garments of vengeance, and his cloak of, cloak of zeal. And as I have been hinting from, from the beginning here, uh, Jesus, in Jesus we have the full and final fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is God coming down in his incarnation, dressed in the armor of God. Jesus, the one who is perfectly dressed in righteousness, in truth, in the readiness of the gospel, in faith and salvation. He's the one who used the word of God as his sword to destroy all his enemies. And he demolishes all the arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. That's Jesus. So, so now we need to see that the command should take up the armor of God comes in line with what Paul said before in the letter. For, for example, in Ephesians 5.1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It is part of imitating God to be dressed in the same armor he's dressed for battle. Or Ephesians 4.21-24, when he says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt, through deceitful desires, and to be renewing the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. The same command in both passages. Put on the new self in the likeness of God. Put on the armor of God. Truth, righteousness, holiness. So what Paul is teaching us here is that our war or struggle is not physical. It's spiritual. And the armor we need to fight this fight is holiness. We need to find ourselves hidden in Jesus to resist the attacks of the devil. 
And Paul is showing us here that the pursuit of holiness is not just something we do naturally as a new creature in Jesus Christ, but it's a necessity. Holiness in this life is a necessity. Because once we are saved and become true believers, Satan hates us and his hate for us multiplied. And he will do everything he can to destroy us. And the way to stand firm and be victorious by attaining practical holiness. It's by getting these things God declared are ours and using them. So when you believe in Christ, you have your sins forgiven and you are declared righteous. But now Paul is calling you to not just be declared righteous, but take, you, take up this righteousness and make it part of you. Put on the righteousness. You rest in the righteousness of Christ and, and knowing that you don't have any righteousness in yourself, but now you strive to make this righteousness of Christ your own, as Paul says. When you believe in Christ, he's the truth. So you are united to the truth. Now Paul is commanding that you put on the truth. You need to start being dressed in the truth like Jesus was and is. We need to fill our minds with the truth. We need to love the truth with our hearts. And we need to let the truth and the word of God be the ground in which we stand. Jesus is the one who is always ready to proclaim the gospel and gave his life to proclaim the message of salvation. And it is by Jesus' readiness to proclaim the gospel that you are saved, that I am saved. And now we need to make Jesus' readiness our own. We need to be ourselves always ready to share the gospel, to go abandon everything behind to bring this message for the people who need this. And it's the gospel message, the message that will keep our feet firm in the battle. Jesus' perfect faith in the Father saved us and is given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' faith protected him from the flaming darts of Satan. We see this in the gospels. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, or when he was, he was protected by his faith, or when Peter was used to deceive him, he could see that, you know, his faith, he said, behind me, Satan. And now Paul calls you to become a man or woman of faith. Let Jesus' faith, let Jesus' perfect trust in the Father be truly yours. And you will be protected against all the flaming darts of Satan. Doesn't matter where they come from. And let the same salvation, glorification that Jesus received in his resurrection be yours. Let this salvation be the helmet in your head. Let it be the security you have in life. And the crown you have in your head. And friends, when you go to attack, let the word of God be your sword. As was Jesus' sword. Jesus never had to take up an uh, actual sword, but he used the word of God all the times for all his battles. And he won all his battles. And the sword that Jesus used to free you and to save you was the word of God. Now let it be the same sword in your hand. The word of God is the sword that destroys evil and at the same time brings life and salvation. It's not a weapon of destruction, but of healing. 
Brothers and sisters, if you want to be a good servant of Christ, a good soldier in this battle, you need to pursue holiness. That's the secret. And the reality you need to face is that there is no Christian who is not a soldier, who is not involved in this spiritual warfare. And we need to understand that when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, it's not about talking about uh, from an individual perspective. As many of us read this text, he's commanding the church to put on the armor of God. It's collective. These things need to be true about our we as a body of believers. Paul in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he's explaining how we are one body and how dependent on each other we are. And we need to be equipped as a church for the struggle with the satanic forces. Truth, righteousness, readiness to share the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God as the sword needs to be the armor we dress as a body of believers. Spiritual warfare is not for some special individuals in the church who like to deal with like spiritual things and supernatural things. No, it's for everyone. It's for the church. And that's how we are going to stand firm together. It doesn't matter if I stand, together, stand firm by myself, but everyone is falling. We need to stand together in this against Satan. And don't deceive yourself thinking that you will win the battle alone because we need each other. We are one body. When one part of the body is weak, when one part is sick, the whole body suffers. And that's why it's very important to understand the whole theme of this series. God's plan for creation was to unite everything in Christ. And we collectively are united to Christ as his body, as his bride. We are predestined together to be the people of God, the church. And we are in this battle against sin, against the world, against Satan together. And when the body is dressed in the armor of God and each part is operating in a health manner according to the gifts that Jesus distributed to the church, we will grow and become mature and stand firm in this evil age. That's the only way. And finally, let's look at verse 18 to 20 to finish our time in the Word. Ephesians 6, 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, make, making supplications for all the saints, and also for me, that the Word may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So having struck the Ephesians to put on their armor, he now commands them to fight by prayer. This part is essential for us to understand because Paul does not want us to make the mistake of thinking that we can somehow put on the armor of God and then become independent of God. The good soldier of Christ put on the armor and then stands in constant prayer. Prayer is the second offensive weapon of the Christian. Martin Luther, the reformer, once said, prayer is a strong wall and fortress of the church. It is a godly Christian weapon. Prayer is essential because all the other pieces of the armor will be of no use without prayer. I like what Pastor Joe Beek, he says about it. He says, fighting Satan without prayer would be like David fighting Goliath 
using Saul's armor. The armor does not, does not fit and has no effect against the attacks of the enemy. So prayer is this thing that fastens the armor together. Prayer is the air we breathe, breathe and give us the strength we need to walk in this armor. And Paul here, he tells how our prayer life should look like. So one thing he says, with all prayer and supplications. So he brings the focus here to the variety of our prayers. We should pray all kinds of prayers. Long prayers, short prayers, private prayer, communal prayers. We shouldn't bring before the Lord small things and big things in our lives. We pray out loud and pray in our minds. We pray in silence. In the supplication part, he wants to emphasize that we should pray for real. Pray with our hearts. Supplication is an earnest request. Not just pray, but pray for real. Be engaged in prayer. Pray with your heart. And he also says, pray at all times, which brings the folks to the frequency of our prayers. We are to pray at specific times, certain days, certain seasons, yes, but we are also to send God's short requests throughout the whole day. Pray at all times. Spurgeon, he once said, prayer cannot be our casual work, but it needs to be our daily work. It needs to be a habit and a vocation. We need to be addicted to prayer. We need to pray all the time, church. All the kinds of prayer. And the third thing Paul taught us about prayer is that we should pray in the Spirit. And here he's focusing on the submission to God when we pray. As we learn in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us according to the will of God. So praying the Spirit means align ourselves to the will of God and let the will of God shape our prayers. The fourth thing yet, Paul tells us to be alert, which talks about the manner in which we should pray. Paul has been telling us about the evil days we live in. He wants us to understand the war in which we are engaged, and our prayers should be of someone who is aware of the situation around us. Many Christians pray in a way that show they are totally oblivious to what's going on in the life of the church, in their own lives, and even in their own hearts and their own homes. Paul is saying, be alert. You need to understand what's going on. You need to understand the battle that you're engaged. And your prayers need to reflect that of someone who is alert. And he tells us also to pray with perseverance, with focus in our persistence. We ought to persevere in prayer. If we know something is the will of God, we ought to insist on this until God moves, until he does this thing. If we don't know the will of God, so we pray until we know his will. So we need to persevere in prayer, church. And finally, Paul talks about the target of our prayers. He says, we are to pray for ourselves, but make simplifications for all saints. So we should not just pray for ourselves, our own needs, but understand that we are united to this body of believers and how all the parts work together, interconnected. We are to pray for all the saints. And again, here he used the word supplication. So we are to truly pray for one another. We are to bring before God earnest requests for each other. 
Because sometimes our, our prayers can be really earnest when it's about our own needs. But when it's my brother, God bless him, yeah. It's just like a short, quick prayer. No, true prayer, supplications for all the saints. And the letter we are finishing today is a perfect application of Paul's teachings here. In this final part, throughout the whole letter, he prays for the church. He prays for them to receive a deeper revelation of their salvation. He prays for strengthening. He prays for their unity and holiness. He prays for the revelation of the love of Jesus for them. And he ends the letter by asking them to pray for him. He sees his own necessity of their prayers. And he ends his letter by asking them to pray for him. And he does not ask them to pray for his well-being or for him to be released from prison. No. He asks them to pray for more boldness for him to proclaim the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I hope you understood today that the war you're involved in, I hope you leave here also knowing that how strong we are and how confident that we can be that we are going to win this war. This war has already a victor, and his name is Jesus Christ. So there is nothing we, can, we should fear. Friends, the church is strong. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because we are strong in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in your presence now. And we ask, Lord, that those things we just learned here, the things we just read in your word, that they can be true about us. I pray for your church, God, now, for, for your church, this local church for trails, that we can become this body of believers that really is dressed in the armor of God. Let those things, the truth and faith and righteousness be the marks of our church. Let our faith be the shoe that protects us against all the the schemes of the devil, all his flaming darts. Give us discernment, God, to understand the times should be alert. to separate good from evil in our church, in, in our homes, in our own lives. And we submit ourselves to you, God, that we need our, your, your help to teach us how to pray. We don't know how to pray. We don't have the strength to pray how we should, with the frequency we should, with the heart we should pray. But we know that your spirit can give us those things to us. So make this church, God, strong in the Lord. Help us to be strengthened in your strength, in your might. Because we know, God, the days are evil. And we want to stand firm to glorify your name. We know it's not like our reputation, our name that's in line here, but it's your name, Lord. I don't ask those things because of us, but because of you, because we carry your name. So it's for your glory, God. Strength your church.
build your church. And make us this, this local church as this mighty water who will defeat Satan in the city. That we will attack all these strongholds, all the lies, all the schemes of the devil that are keeping people captive in the disobedience to Christ. And through the preaching of the gospel, it can bring more people to the kingdom of light and to obedience to Christ. We ask, Lord, that you use us in this way, in your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.